I guess uh, for everyone listening out there, my name is Andrew Kesterson. I'm a farmer in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I'm here with uh, Jim Heim. He's uh, first off, uh, uh, we're, we're talking about the events of 9-11, and Jim is a 9-11 survivor. He actually was able to make his way out of uh, Two World Trade Center. Uh, Jim is uh, a writer, an author. He, uh, former tax attorney, uh, used to work for Heinz in real estate acquisitions and now works um, with uh, USAA now currently in that kind of same position doing real estate, um, financial acquisitions and stuff of that, of that nature. Is that, is that all correct, Jim? Yeah, the, my current role is um, I'm standing up a team to invest in what's you know kind of euphemistically known or generally known as uh, infrastructure. Uh, so power, water, telecommunications, transportation. We've got a small team that's that's edging into that space. There's been a lot of talk about it in the recent past because of the uh, legislation that's moved moving through Congress. And so um, we're it's a it's a big investor. It's a big investment sector that uh, USAA and our other investors would like to be exposed to. So that's kind of the last my last rodeo. How are you? How, how old are you right now? I am sixty seven. And how old were you? Obviously, we can all do math, but how old were you on uh, September 11, 2001? I was 47 uh, then. Uh, and so, um, you know, I've lived about, I've lived another 20 years since then. I'm very grateful for that because it could have turned out very differently for me that, that, that morning. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and just to give anyone listening just kind of some background between you and I, you're not, you know, some random guy that I just picked up a phone book and, and called or something. You, you have a connect, we have a kind of a mutual connection through my dad. So, um, you know, uh, I think you worked with I him for, for a few years. Yeah, I practiced law with your father. He's a very fine lawyer and a very fine man. And uh, he reached out to me to, to uh, connect me with you because of your interest in this subject matter. And uh, I have um, obviously some personal experience that I'm more than happy to share, but uh, uh, I would do it uh, in any event as a favor for your dad because he's a, he's a great guy. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. And I think that's a good segue into kind of why we're here. Um, the date is 9-1-2021, so obviously we're coming up very closely on the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Um, I think with any huge event of that nature, it's, it's very hard to imagine that we're that many years past it, but, you know, here we are. Um, and so one of the things, you know, part of my personal history is I'm a farmer, but I also started off, you know, in school and kind of my first passion was, was history and studying history. I really thought for a long time that I was going to go and go into extended studies and try to get a PhD and teach. And so kind of keeping up the, the memory of history and teaching it and, and distributing it out, that's kind of always been something I've been passionate about. And 9-11 being something that I've lived through and, you know, it's, uh, it serves a very, it's, 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 it holds a very special place in my heart in terms of, you know, pushing forward people's stories and keeping memory alive. And I've got um, a quote here as a book by uh, Mitchell Zukoff, and it's um, called Fall and Rise. It was written in 2019. So this is, um, you know, we're, we're really getting in the point of, of understanding and remembering 9-11 where it's becoming an historical event. And that's kind of what he was writing about here. This is from his intro. Um, and I recommend anyone listening or, or, or uh, hearing this on a podcast, please buy the book and read it. It's fantastic. Um, but I'll just read a few lines from it. We can kind of, you know, get in the discussion. Uh, it says, with time, news becomes history, and history, it's been said, is what happened to other people. For anyone who lived through September 11th, time might dull the anger and grief that followed the death and destruction caused when terrorists turned four commercial passenger jets into guided missiles, but the memories won't die. 
Um, and this might be something that you, you kind of appreciate, Jim, because we talked about this last time during our initial discussion was kind of about the memory of Pearl Harbor versus 9-11. And he says here, the story in E&W Toll described this progression in relation to another shocking enemy assault that also led to war, the raid on Pearl Harbor 60 years earlier. He says the passage of time strips away the searing immediacy of the surprise attack and envelops it in layers of exposition and retrospective judgment. Hindsight furnishes us with perspective on the crisis, but it also undercuts our ability to empathize with the immediate concerns of those who suffered through it. Um, I mean, and that's pretty much why you're here. I mean, it's, you're, you know, we, I basically just want to hear about what you went through and kind of what you saw, heard and felt that day. And we'll kind of get into kind of what happened afterwards, but I guess, take me back to, you know, September 10th, 2001, or, or a little bit prior. I mean, what were you doing in New York? What were you going to the World Trade Center for? And how did you get there? So they, um, they, the genesis this, of this was the fact that um, I, at the time, was at the Heinz organization. It's a Houston-based development firm. Um, I was um, um, working in the what we refer to as capital market space, basically leading an effort with two colleagues, um, Chris Smith and Dave Congdon, to try to um, raise capital for investing in basically office buildings around the world. With, with some emphasis in North America. And we were working with a retired Morgan Stanley director by the name of Bill Smith. Um, Bill is a good friend of, of our firm, a great guy, um, wonderful family man, uh, Notre Dame graduate. And I think all his kids went to Notre Dame. Anyway, we were uh, on a conference call Sunday morning to talk about how this fund should be structured and how we could make it appealing to institutional investors, people like the Teachers Retirement System of Texas or my old firm, Abu Dhabi Investment Authority or Dutch Pension Funds. And um, we didn't finish the conversation, nor did we expect to. We said, um, why don't we continue the conversation Tuesday morning? I needed to be in lower Manhattan for a meeting at 10 o'clock with Deutsche Bank. Um, to just It was a kind of a conversation about relationship and our, our banking needs. So I said, why don't we meet... Um, in, you know, in, the, in the offices, uh, uh, Morgan Stanley had a million square feet uh, in the South Tower of the World Trade Center, starting at about the 44th floor and going up to the 66th floor, um, that they had, a, they had, when they acquired Dean Winter in 1997, they basically stepped into Dean Winter's shoes as the lessee of that space. The buildings were, were at that time owned by the um, Port Authority of New, uh, New, New, New York and New Jersey which had just sold them to Larry Silverstein, a local developer in June of that year, in June of 2001. In any event, uh, Morgan Stanley had um, uh, on the 66th floor, a classic kind of Wall Street dining room experience with mahogany walls and white jacketed waiters and you know the um, fancy menu. Uh, and uh, Bill, Bill Smith, who is, although he was retired at Morgan Stanley, uh, managing director had maintained an office there that he continued to use and he maintained privileges at their executive dining uh, facility. So the, our plan was to meet that morning at 7.30 uh, on the morning of the 11th uh, to continue this conversation about this fund that we were trying to raise. And um, I stayed in Midtown at a, a hotel called the Omni Berkshire, which has since closed uh, as a result of the pandemic at 52nd and Madison. So that morning I woke up probably at six o'clock and was getting myself organized to go to uh, the, the um, lower Manhattan to the, this meeting. 
And um, I was actually in my room, Bill called my cell phone and said, uh, he's running late. The trains are running late in New Jersey. He lives out in New Jersey. And I said, well, that's all right. I'll just meet you down there. And um, I walked over to 666 Fifth Avenue and caught the E-train to lower Manhattan to uh, E-train had it, it, it had a, uh, a stop there at, uh, at the site of the World Trade Center, a 14 acre site. And uh, so train down there uh, took, um, you know, went upstairs to the lobby, um, uh, checked in with the lobby guard. Um, at that point uh, in time, that, in, that process entailed having my picture taken, there it is, uh, having a um, photo ID actually printed on the on site. There's a magnetic strip on it that you use to swipe into the, to gain access to, through the turnstile to the elevator. Um, so wandered over there, swiped my way in to um, uh, the elevator, took the elevator to the 44th floor. There was an express elevator that went nonstop from the ground floor to 44. There was another set of express elevators. I think they went up to like 72. Um, they're transferred to a shuttle to take it up to 66, which is where we were, we were scheduled to meet. And um, so rocked up there that morning um, around 7.30. Our dining room was the Manhattan dining room. That was what it was called. And, um, you know, the receptionist showed us in. And that was situated, the geography is kind of important. The Manhattan dining room was uh, located on the northeast corner of the South, uh, uh, South uh, uh, Two World Trade, which is the South Tower. So you think about it, right. you had Two World Trade here and One World Trade here. And our um, we were two thirds of the stack in Two World Trade uh, with a view out to the east over Brooklyn, um, uh, over the East River to Brooklyn and way up the island to the north and blocking uh, part of our view to the northwest was the, you know, the, the, the second tower, uh, world, one world trade. And so um, it was a beautiful morning, absolutely bluebird, um, election day in New York City, first day of school. Um, those two factors are important because had it been otherwise, there probably would have been many more, many thousands of more people in those buildings, but people were taking their children to school and people were stopping off to vote. Um, but still it was busy and, um, we, we, um, sat down to breakfast. Bill finally arrived. Um, the, um, menu was, um, it was everything you'd want it to be. Belgian waffles, Denver omelet, that sort of thing. I had been in, uh, Europe the month before and had not, uh, paid as much attention to my diet as I probably should have put on a couple of pounds. And so I went, opted for the special K. I'll never forget that. And um, we, we, you know, the white jacketed waiter and the thin china and the heavy silver and, and they serve our breakfast and we're talking about this deal and this money, this capital we'd like to raise um, by probably 8.15 or 8.30, all the dishes have been cleared off the dining room table. It was just, um, it was Bill and Chris and Dave and me uh, with our papers scattered all about. Um, calculators out, you know, cell phones. Back in those days, we all had Blackberries, uh, well before the iPhone. And yeah. at, at about a quarter of nine, uh, what we were talking about actually the capital, the capital uh, consumption of, of, of office buildings. Office buildings, people don't really appreciate this, but office buildings require a lot of capital to keep them leased and keep them maintained. And that drags on returns. And that was the very subject we were talking about. And I was thinking through the problem and how that would appear to investors when I looked up and looked out the north window, the window facing north, 
and you could see way down the island and somewhere in the middle of the island, you know, I can't tell you how many blocks up north, but it was, but you, there was this jet, um, this low flying jet was uh, demonstrably flying too low. You never see a plane. I mean, the planes you see in New York City are way up there, right? And so there's this yeah. that's flying uh, right at us down the island at, um, it couldn't have been more than a thousand feet, I'm thinking. And I, I, I just blurted out, look at that jet. He's flying way too low. If he doesn't pull up, I think he's going to crash. And everybody turned around and looked at it. And they, and Dave Congdon said, I think he's going to crash anyway. And so we got up. It was just mesmerizing. We got up from the table and went to the window. And I remember going to the window and watching just a gog at this jet as it was flying toward us. And, you know, there was what I could tell he could fly right at, he could have flown right at us. I'm, I remember trying to look into the cockpit and figure out what was going on, you know, but the cockpit was, you know, it was, um, um, it was tinted. There's no way to see inside the cockpit. You couldn't see a thing. And yeah. about, about um, the time, I think uh, that was when uh, Dave said, I think this guy's going to crash anyway. He flew out of our uh, line of vision above the window line. And there was almost there was simultaneously this massive explosion, um, uh, and our building felt you know felt the shockwave right. Our building um, rocked back and forth, and we looked up, and above us you could see the south side and the east side of One World Trade. The north side is where the plane flew in. You couldn't see the big gaping hole that we're all familiar with from the from the from the films. But the east side and the south side, there were a couple of floors, probably 30 floors above us, 20 or 30 floors above us that were, that were in, totally engulfed in flames. And they, when the explosion occurred, there was this giant shower of debris and a parabolic arc that went across the horizon and papers floating above it. And um, Bill Smith, the managing director um, said, We've got to get out of here. We've got to get out of here right now. And um, I asked him weeks later why he said that. And he said um, that on February 26, 1993, when the truck bomb went off in the parking garage uh, down below, below grade uh, um, World Trade Center, that the um, injuries and death were caused not by the explosion, but by the uh, by smoke inhalation that the, it created so much smoke and the smoke went up into the um, into the emergency stairs and people uh, inhaled it and got ill or I think there may have been some fatalities as a result. And he said when he looked at One World Trade and looked at the the extent of the fire, he knew instinctively that if FDNY would never put it out. And there was no, and you know, when you combine the fact that it was, you know, supercharged with aircraft fuel and everything else. And he said, I knew when I asked him, well, how did you know we should leave? He said, I knew that they would never get that fire out. And the, um, the, the way One World Trade and Two World Trade were built, they were connected underground with retail, uh, with, a, a, you know, like a shopping mall in effect. And so he said, I thought that one world trade would burn down, the, the smoke would come over to two world trade through the connecting underground retail and up in the uh, emergency stairs. So it was uh, apparent to me we needed to leave right then. I think also, by the way, I think he, he was, that was some of his training. I think Morgan Stanley and before them, Dean Winter had done a fair amount of emergency drills as under the 
uh, under the guidance of a guy named Rick Wascorla, who was their uh, security guard, uh, who was their head of security, not the security guard. And Wascorla was one of the 13 people who didn't make it out that day. But Wascorla had drilled those people. If something like this happens, you got to leave. And yeah. uh, and so Bill said to me, do you remember what I said when you said, when, do you remember what you, Jim Heim, said when I said, we got to get out of here right now? I said, I don't remember saying anything. And he said, no, you said, you betcha. Uh, so my response <laughs> Same, right? Fight or flight. Um, yeah. I, I think instinctively, I didn't want to be in that zip code anymore. And so we turned back away from the window and there was the dining room, dining room table. And it was just, you know, it was littered with papers and, and um, all our personal effects. And I'll never forget that uh, Dave Congdon, who's a taciturn Connecticut Yankee, um, a man of relatively few words, said, don't forget your wireless communication devices, which I thought in retrospect, who says something like that, right? <laughs> don't forget yourself, don't forget your wireless communication devices. And he's a very precise, precise guy. We had Blackberries too. Anyway, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we grabbed our wireless communication devices and packed up our stuff and grabbed our bags and went to the emergency stairs, Dave, Chris, uh, and I did. Bill, uh, for his part, took a tour around the floor to tell people to get out um, and to make sure that people understood they needed to leave. Then he took the shuttle elevator down from 66 to 44 and walked down from 44 in a different staircase. We lost Bill, lost out of Bill right away. He ended up getting to the ground and going all the way up to Midtown to 1587 Broadway, which is where Morgan Stanley's um, corporate headquarters was and meeting with Phil Purcell, the then CEO, to tell him what had happened. Um, but Dave, Chris, and I got into those emergency stairs and uh, started heading down. And I, I, we'd gone a couple of flights, a few flights, and I thought, you know what, I better, I better let Paulette, my wife, know what's going on here because she knows I'm in New York. She doesn't know why. She doesn't know where I am, and she's going to worry. So I got out my wireless communication device and called her. Uh, it took several tries to get through. The cell, cell uh, uh, networks were already getting jammed. Yeah, but I got through and, and I said, look, um, I said, I'm in one, a two world trade, something terrible has happened in one world trade, but we're taking the emergency stairs, we're getting out. And she said, I know I'm watching it on the Today Show. The Today Show cut across, cut away from what they were doing. And now I'm looking at, you know, this event. They're saying it was a Cessna. And I said, no, it was a, an American Airlines 767. And I, I knew my jets, I knew the, the, the their configuration and it was a 767. And um, uh, and so we pretty much lost the connection at that point. Um, the stair, as we kept going down, the staircase continued to fill up with people who were in the process of evacuating. As you went by open doors, you could hear the loudspeaker system. The, the, the uh, building manager was saying, don't leave. You're safe in the building. Um, uh, you know, bad things happening outside. Don't leave. You're safer here than outside. Well, we were, none of us was paying attention to that. Um, we got to the, um, about 35 floors above the street, somewhere in there. And there was this another, another huge boom. The building rocked violently and the, and all the lights flickered. Um, at that point there was some screaming and, you know, um, but no one knew what had happened. Right. And we were all inside an enclosed windowless emergency staircase, unable to see what was going on outside while the rest of the world was watching the United jet fly up sat from the South and hit uh, the two world trade at about the 72nd floor, about six floors higher than where we had been. 
um, mm -hmm. on, the, on the bias, as it were. Um, and so, uh, not no, not really knowing what had happened, we were um, none of us in any mood to um, slow down whatsoever. The pace picked up. We all uh, the way the the emergency stairs worked is they um, exited on the ground floor uh, at ground level uh, near a set of escalators that uh, were connected with the underground retail. Um, and what was happening was all of the evacuees were being directed to those, to those escalators, which had been stopped so you could access both of them, they weren't moving. Beyond them were, were the huge um, windows, floor to ceiling windows of the lobby, double height, triple height, uh, enormously tall. Um, past that was the plaza between two World Trade and one World Trade, there was a plaza in between the two of them. And it was, in my recollection is it was smoky yeah, there was there was smoke and that, but there were first responders standing in front of all those doors or windows, preventing any access to that part of the site. Everybody was being directed to the those escalators that, that went downward into the retail. So there was a little bit of a backup at the top of those escalators. Uh, eventually, we made our way down uh, to a line of first responders who then directed us all to the northeast. Um, portion of the site, which is where the E-train stopped. They directed us to the same stop where I had come in that morning. Uh, we, we got to the E-train stop. We were directed down the platform for about a quarter of a mile. It was a long platform that then exited to the surface at Ch Church and Chambers Street, the corner of Church and Chambers Street, which um, I believe is Church Street, had a view all the way down to the World Trade Center site. So I got, by this time I'd lost Dave and Chris. They'd gone, we, the crowds had become, you know, it just become madness. Um, yeah. And they, they ended up working their way uptown um, little by little. I think they're mostly on foot. Um, but I stopped and turned around and looked at One World Trade and Two World Trade and they're both on fire, which was mind boggling to me. So um, I got out my wireless communication device once again, called my wife, Paulette. <laughs> said, you know, it took several tries. I said, um, I'm out of the building. I'm away from it. I'm safe. What happened to two world trade? And she said, the plane blew into it. And I said, no, it was one world trade. I saw that. What, why is two world trade on fire? And she said, listen to me, a plane flew into it. And I had two thoughts immediately. The first one was, uh, this was Osama bin Laden. He had, he had had something in the works. I mean, there'd been Actually, there have been more about it in the European papers. And I said I was in Europe in the previous month. I'd read, read more about bin Laden and what he might be up to in the European press than I think we were reading about in the United States. But my instant thought was this is, this is the work of bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Uh, and when I told that story, by the way, uh, about uh, 10 years later to a guy who, had, who was working in the, who, I met him in the, at the embassy, the U.S. embassy, uh, they had held up a, a, um, an event uh, in uh, Abu Dhabi, which is where I was living at the time. I told him that I knew immediately it was bin Laden. He said, that's really funny because I was working FBI at that point in time, and it didn't occur to us till several days later who it might be. But he was, he was just like a, a street agent, right? He wasn't in, in uh, counterintelligence or anything. Yeah. My, my second, literally my second thought was, my last meal on this earth was almost a bowl of Special K, and I haven't eaten it since. <laughs> You don't know what your last meal is. 
And so eat, uh, eat hearty, eat, eat the vegetables you're growing there, uh, Andrew, because uh, they're better for you anyway. So um, I lost my connection to home, got on my BlackBerry, which is what we had then. Again, it was a text device essentially and texted yeah. my uh, travel agent and said, I, you need to get me out of here. I mean, this, this place is gonna be locked down. It's gonna be madness. I need, I need to figure out some way to get home. So they went to work on that. And uh, I went to work on getting to Midtown, which is where our corporate, the Heinz corporate office was in a building 53rd at 3rd. Um, but actually I'd help, I'd represented Heinz when we financed it back in 1983. Uh, but getting to the corporate office was the, the smartest thing I could think to do. And um, I um, walked, uh, over to Foley Square, which is where most of the, um, where a lot of courthouses are, some of the, uh, you know, uh, state and city offices uh, at Foley Square, and the streets were packed. I mean, there were people all, you know, on the sidewalks, people staring up at the buildings, there were sirens going everywhere, it was a, it was pandemonium. And sitting in a stoplight in, po in Foley Square was a single yellow cab with his off-duty sign on. So I made my way over to him and I rapped on his window. And um, I said, look, pal, if you're going to Midtown, I can make it worth it. I can really make it worth your while. He said, well, hop. <laughs> and um, so I got in the back and I'm looking at the two world trade, which you can see out the back glass. And I'm going, I can't believe what I just went through. Uh, that building got hit with a plane and I was in it. He said, you were there? I said, yeah, man, I was in that building. And uh, and he hands me a micro cassette recorder over the back seat. And he says, would you give me your story? Because I'm a freelance reporter for a Harlem radio station. So I had I get the first interviews given by, by anybody that morning to a Harlem radio station. I've never heard it. I, you know, I don't know if you could ever find it or not. But anyway, yeah. we're, we're inching our way towards Midtown. And um, we're in the village. We're somewhere near Greenwich Village. And um, this is just how weird this morning was. Um, there, out of this crowd emerges this uh, very handsome uh, African-American woman dressed in a, a white turban and a white uh, ankle length dress. It was like a, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but it was kind of a formless ankle length dress. And she comes and she flags us down and she speaks to the driver. And she, he says, well, it's up to him. And uh, I said, come on, hop in sister, uh, wherever you're going, we'll take you. So she gets in the back and she turns to me and, and she goes, um, when you go to a rock concert, aren't, there, aren't, there, aren't you supposed to be allowed to keep half of your ticket? I, you know, this is an odd question, but she seems to be genuinely in, in search of my counsel on this. And so I said, ma'am, it's been a while since I was at a rock concert, but that's my recollection. And she said, well, I thought so. She said, I was at a Michael Jackson concert last week in Madison Square Garden, and they took the whole ticket, and I'm going to go back and get the other half. And I said, ma'am, I'm not sure you picked the right morning for that, but we'll take you to Madison Square Garden. That's what just what we did. Um, and so the cabbie took me to 47th Street, which is as far as we could go. I gave him $100 and got out of the cab, walked up to 53rd at 3rd. There was my boss, Hasty Johnson, then the CFO of Heinz. And um, he and I needed to figure out how to get back to Houston. He was going to be with me, be with me at this meeting at Deutsche Bank that morning. And um, so working with our travel agent, we figured out that we could get a, we could walk up Third Avenue to the West Avenue Bridge, pick up a town car, take that to Greenwich, Connecticut, pick up a, uh, a rent car and drive home. 
And that's how we got out of there. And um, walking up Third Avenue that midday with the fighter jets screaming overhead. And you could see the streets at the end were blocked with big sand trucks. It was just the most bizarre, surreal experience of all time. So we got out of there, it took us two days to drive home, drive home to Houston. So what, and that was something I wanted to ask you about last time. What was that drive home like? I mean, obviously you probably went to maybe Alabama even, or some probably around that area. We dropped down, we drove down to, we stayed, stayed the night in Reston, Virginia, at a, mm. at a Hyatt Regency in Reston Town Center. Uh, and in the bar that night at 1130 was the first time I'd seen the film of the, um, the United Jet heading to, to World Trade. And it was just, I mean, I like, you know, my, I just jaw, jaw dropping. Um, and um, we listened to the radio pretty much the whole way. I, I listened to, I was, I remember hearing um, like somebody from the FDNY or maybe it was Giuliani, someone saying that they thought they, they had 350 fire, firemen missing. Um, and it was just heartbreaking. And, um, and then I got a call from a friend of mine, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal named Matoka Rich. She now uh, writes for the Times. She's in their uh, mm -hmm. Tokyo office. She said, listen, I heard you were in uh, uh, Two World Trade. She heard from a mutual friend. I said, yeah, I was. She said, would you give me, would you write me an email of everything that happened? Because you're an eyewitness and your account is invaluable. And so I spent a fair amount of the following day kind of writing her an email, which we still have a copy of. Uh, my wife saved it. Uh, we drove mm -hmm. to uh, Virginia, North Carolina, I think through Tennessee. I think we spent the night, that night in Montgomery. I think we spent it in Montgomery. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we drove home from there to um, Houston on that, on that Thursday. Um, so, and uh, Hasey Johnson, a great guy, a wonderful man, friend of this day, is a man of very few words. Um, and uh, small talk is not his forte. Um, and I was still in shock. That was the quietest two-day car ride anybody's ever been through, other than what was on the radio. I mean, that's exactly what I was going to ask you is what did, did you talk about anything on the way home or was it just basically just sort of just just mute silence trying to process what in the heck you just went through? I mean, it was more of the, it was more of the latter. I'll tell you, yeah. a funny, I'll tell you a funny story where we were um, at that time, our, our younger son, Josh, was um, just starting his second year at Northwestern University. And he had a friend, um, um, uh, another, uh, there were uh, two other people two or three other people in Houston that we knew who were, Paulette and I were supposed to get in the car and drive Josh to Chicago that weekend. And, um, but what happened, you know, all the planes were grounded, right? Except, except mm -hmm. uh, general aviation, except private jets were flying by Thursday. And so we we're just going to get in the car and drive him. And we decided that'd be a good thing, you know, spend time together as a family. We're, we're in Louisiana and my phone rings and it's, um, Jeff Hines' secretary, Jeff being the president of the firm. And he said, look, Brian O'Gilvy and, and Josh, our son, and a couple of other people uh, need, need to get back to Northwestern for school to start. We've got people stranded in Chicago that need to get home from Houston. Why don't we put you all on our corporate jet and fly us up and fly you up to Chicago and then they can bring back our, the people who are stranded there in our corporate office. And I'm like, that sounds great to me. So I called home and told Paulette that. And I think it caught her, it stunned her a bit and she was caught off guard and she didn't, 
she was so rattled by the whole experience. I mean, she watched this happen on television, right? She didn't know she for for a good long while. She didn't know she had just become a widow and uh, yeah. still trying to get her bearings. So I called her with this change of plans, and it didn't go over well. Uh, I mean, it didn't. It, it it demonstrably didn't go over well. And I'm just sitting there listening to what she has to say about it. And I said, "We'll give it some thought, and we can talk about it later." And Hasty was over in the driver's seat listening to all this. And I hung up and he goes, that's about how that call would have gone with my wife too. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I've got that question right here is just the days after, I mean, how long did it take you to get back on a plane? I mean, obviously you weren't super freaked out initially, but did you ever have any reservations about traveling again or what? Um, uh, we were supposed to go back on September 25th, which was a Sunday. Um, and that Sunday morning, I believe it was a Sunday I believe it was September 25th. That Sunday morning, uh, I had become an obsessive watcher of the cable of Sunday morning talk shows. And every Sunday morning from 9-11 to that Sunday morning, there were the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary, you know, the um, uh, Director of the CIA, you know, the National Security Advisor, the President's Security Team, the Vice President, they were all on those Sunday talk shows. Mm-hmm. But that Sunday morning, not a one of them was, not one single one. They were all those congressmen and senators. And I, I looked at that. We were supposed to go to the airport and catch a flight, pull out at night to go back to New York that day and I, to, to meet actually with Bill Smith and um, some Morgan Stanley people the following day to continue our conversations. And I, I said, I'm canceling this trip. And she said, why? And she said, I said, we're going to war in Afghanistan and we're doing it today. And I don't want to be anywhere near New York City if we're doing that today. Sure enough, noon, mm-hmm. CNN announced that we had started bombing uh, Afghanistan. So the next trip I made was actually to L.A. It was for an industry conference to L.A. Um, about the f- around the month, a month after 9-11. Um, took a flight from Houston to L.A. And then I was going to fly from L.A. to, to uh, New York for to start again these conversations with Morgan Stanley that we we're trying to have when all this happened. And... Um, the my my travel agent had me going into Newark and I woke up one morning and I thought the way you get from Newark to Midtown is through a tunnel through one of the tunnels the Lincoln or the um the other one Hudson I think it is and um no not the Hudson it's Lincoln and the um anyway I forget um and I said, the sons of bitches, if you'll pardon the expression, are going to bomb the tunnels next. And I don't want to get a tunnel that gets bombed. So I yeah. called my, I called my um, travel agent and I said, Debbie, I don't want to fly into Newark. I want you to fly me into, I want to fly into JFK. And so um, she said, okay. And so I got on this American jet from LA to, to JFK on a Wednesday, I think. And there must have been, maybe there were, there were more flight attendants than there were actual passengers. It was empty. It was me and like five other people. And so we fly to JFK and um, I, get out, I get out of the, at the curb and I got my bag and I get in a cab and I look at the medallion and I've noticed the guy's wearing, you know, um, a headcloth. I look at the medallion. His name is Muhammad. I'm like, oh, my God. And so I said, how are you planning to go to, to Midtown? He said, I'm going to take the Midtown tunnel. I said, no, you're not. You're going to take the Triborough Bridge. And I was so spooked, you know, and going down and, and then driving down Sixth Avenue that that night 
it was a ghost town. There wasn't anybody on the streets. It was like it was like what you the, the scenes you've seen from New York in the pandemic. Nothing was open. No one was around. It was empty. So that was the next trip. Hmm. And so I guess fast forward a bit since we are at the 20 year anniversary. How do you think about what happened on that day every day? I mean, how do you process it? How does it fit into your daily narrative in life? It's yeah, you know, I certainly did shortly thereafter. I became very obsessed with the war in Afghanistan and with cable news and um, had trouble concentrating, had trouble sleeping. Um, and that went on for some months. And um, the, as I when we previously mentioned, talked, I, I mentioned uh, Paul and I would see a counselor right after it. And the uh, counselor said, you're going to have to do something to process this. And I said, mm-hmm. what do you recommend? And she said, well, you're a writer, and I am a writer, I'm a published novelist. Uh, I said, she said, write about it. And so I said, okay, I'll try that. And so um, literally on that that flight from LA to JFK, uh, that Wednesday in October, I got out my laptop and I started trying to journal, you know, journal my feelings. And after writing a page of it, I went and looked at it and it was just such self-indulgent crap, I couldn't stand it. So I deleted the file and I thought, well, that's not gonna work. But then, um, and this will get around to answer your question. Um, I got to think about something my mom had said. My mom said that every time the, the subject came up of 9-11, my, my dad, my late father, who was a man's man, I mean, he didn't show his emotions hardly at all, would get very emotional. And I started thinking about what it would have, what it would have been like for him to lose his son in lower Manhattan and, and not know what happened to him, right? <clears throat> and, you know, what had become of him. And that, that became a germ of an idea that in turn, I thought, suppose that had been me. Suppose I had lost a son, it, you know, a grown son in Manhattan. How, what, how, what would my reaction be? Um, and so that became the premise of a novel, uh, which uh, is called 3000 Bridges, which mm-hmm. I, um, then I've got it around here somewhere. I'll show you the cover. But the premise of working through what that would mean to me, and and then trying to figure out, and then taking this protagonist, Cole Sims, who's a crusty old Texas wall man from the South Texas on a drive, retracing the steps that we took away from 9/11 to New York in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and put, putting coal through everything that everybody went through at that stage in, in, in history and putting all that down on paper purged me of a lot of that, right? I was, yeah. I was able to deal with it after that. So do I think about it all the time? You betcha. I mean, I think about all the people that didn't make it out and, you know, still have, you know, you know do experience, you know, uh, some element of survivor guilt. Um, but, um, you know, I, the main takeaway is look, every day is a gift. Don't eat special K. Uh, you don't know what your time is up. And, uh, and this time of year, I will say it becomes a little more real again, is it, it, it's on the television, uh, more often people are talking yeah. about it. Uh, my wife and my mother both re- reread 3000 bridges, the book that I wrote in the aftermath of that, cause it helps them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, life goes on, right? And um, uh, we've been we've been to the museum, we've been to the memorial. Uh, that was pretty tough. That needed to fort, that needed um, an adult beverage to fortify you, me to get through it. Uh, which yeah, uh, we went to lunch at the Capitol Grill and 
and before we went, and it was a very emotional experience. Uh, but Imagine. life life does go on, and um, you, you try to the you know the, do the best with what you're given, which is um, you know why. By the way, one of the great things about being at USAA for so many years, um, this is actually the eighth anniversary of my arrival here at USAA Real Estate. Is we invest um, the the capital we invest on behalf of USAA is for members of USAA. There are 13 million of them. They're the military families of the U.S. and yeah. and their direct uh, relations, you know. And so, my <clears throat> ability to do this job is a little bit of the ability to repay the people who've helped us save for 13, for 20 years, I think 13 years, for 20 years, right? So this is my mm -hmm. way of kind of paying back a little bit. It's, it's, um, it, it feels good to be doing that. Yeah, I bet it does. Um, that's, a, that's a good segue to my next kind of segment or, or section is what, just in general, very broad question of what does the concept of never forget mean to you? You know, what, what would you, I guess, more specifically, I have a list under here, you know, what would you want? Because part of this conversation, why we're going to be putting it on, you know, my Instagram, YouTube and, and podcasts is so this can access a different, you know, segment of, of generations because, you know, people that, you know, I hate to say it, but people that read books a lot, that's kind of, you know, it's still going to be around, but people consume media and things different ways. And so how do you want the concept of never forget in 9-11 to kind of exist in, in younger people? How do you want them to see it? Just the, the, you know, I think it's, it's worth people taking the time. Everybody gets to, you know, everybody. Many, many people get to New York eventually to see the city. It's a great city to experience the, you know, the shows, the, the restaurants, that sort of thing. When you do that, go, go down there. Go to Ground Zero. Yeah. See the music. Yeah, I mean, it's. I've yet to go, but I've seen enough of it and, you know, documentaries on it and whatever to, to know that that's probably a, yeah. a very powerful place. And, and like we discussed, I've been to the Flight 93 uh, Memorial in, in Shanksville. Um, you know, those, those places are powerful in just being museums. I mean, just the images and the recordings and everything, that's powerful enough. But for me, probably what got me the most, and it's the same way in New York, is those memorials serve as you know, grave sites for a lot of people. You know, the 40 yeah. here as a flight 93 at the memorial there, the however many people they weren't able to fully recover in New York. And I know families, and that was part of, there's a little controversy early on with the New York memorial is, you know, these families really, they go there, you know, every year on 9-11 or even just, just on a random day to go visit their loved ones. And that's, that's probably the most powerful thing about this place is, is that you're in the presence of these people. And I could feel in Shanksville, and you could probably, you know, you may echo the same thing in New York, but there's a, there's a palpable, presence that you feel when you're in these places i mean it's you can really feel it yeah i've got a good friend who lost her fiance you know that day there you know a lot of it touched a lot of people's lives and it's um yeah it's 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 worth going down there and seeing all the names of the people that we lost that day and you know, think you know spending a little time thinking about the lives that we would have lived if they had been as fortunate as i was right yeah I mean, that's, and that's why I like this book that we kind of opened with the fall and rise is, you know, Mitchell, he, he worked for the Boston Globe for years. He may still work for him, but he kind of wrote, was the one that sort of wrote the opening story on, you know, September 12th about, particularly about all the, you know, many of the flights left uh, Boston Logan. And, 
you know, that's what his intro, we didn't, we didn't read through all of it. Basically the whole summary of it is, I mean, this is the best way to not let 9-11 just fall into the, the vat of history and just kind of be this, you know, three, almost 3,000 people died type event is to remember each individual person, what they did, how they contributed, how they lived through it, whether it's people that died or people, you know, like you, and I know you have some survivor's guilt, but your story is just as valuable as anyone else's. And, and by supporting those stories and remembering those stories, I mean, that's how people remember the value of it. Because like you said in his intro, is there's been this whole just framework that's been built up around the actual event, whether it's political stuff or, you know, thinking about how, what we should have done in Afghanistan or not done. And really that kind of dilutes what actually occurred on the ground that day. You know what I mean? I mean, but what occurred was it was an attack. A bunch of people died. A lot of people got injured and people's lives. I mean, the entire country was changed forever. And just remembering that and who, who was involved in what they could have done, I think is probably the most important thing for me. You know, at least. very well said. I couldn't, I can't, I can't improve on that. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, so was there anyone, I know you mentioned Rick, Rick Rescorla. Was there anyone that you would like particular to talk about or remember? I know Rick, you, you, we talked about him briefly, just kind of how he was on top of anything else, but there's anyone, you know, him or anyone else that you'd like to talk about or remember specifically? I, I think uh, I would, I've mostly focused on Rick because I, I believe and my wife believes that it was his training that got, you know, that made Bill say, we got to get out of here. And um, look, at, uh, from the 66th floor down to the bottom of the stack was um, probably total budget, probably 35, 40 minutes. If we'd still be on the 66th floor when the second plane hit, you know, do we get out? I don't know. Right. And so Rescorla, um, you know, uh, was one of the real heroes. And it's worth spending a little time contemplating, you know, how um, dedicated he was. He stayed there in the building singing, singing Cornish fighting songs into his loudspeaker to keep people's spirits up. So, yeah. yeah that, I mean, the, the way I know his story is he, he basically stood there and was like, you know, he got his megaphone out and he was like, you know, people were kind of sitting milling around trying to figure out where to leave. And he was like, no, go, you know, something like that. Just like, leave, get out, yeah. you know, please. I mean, is that basically what, what he was doing? Did you read um, James Stewart's book about him uh, called, uh, I think it was a soldier's story or something like that. If you haven't, it's really worth it. It's a good read. James. No, it's, it's funny. Cause I saw an interview. I've been, I actually went and looked back at a YouTube video on the one year anniversary of 9-11 um, 2002. And they interviewed him and Rescorla's wife on the Today Show. And so that kind of, um, yeah, funny story. I'm going to have to go read that. It seems like a really good book. It's a really good book. And because he was in Vietnam, he fought at the battle. Mm -hmm. uh, I forgot the name of the battle, but the book was written about it. We were soldiers then and young. Uh, Colonel Moore uh, was made into a Mel Gibson movie uh, a couple of years after 9-11. Um, and uh, actually, Rescorla's photo was on the cover of that book in his combat gear um yeah back in the early um 80s or whenever it was written so just worth a read yeah yeah no i think we got a lot of good good reading suggestions out of this out of this um you know podcast interview obviously your book Three Thousand bridges i've got a kindle copy that i've been reading through on my phone real easy and convenient to get to uh fallen rise and then uh, a soldier story um about rescorla so there's some suggestions for everyone listening um so, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I guess just personally, I'll, I'll say a person I'd like people to know about. Um, and it's actually, his name's John Oganowski. 
he was the one of the pilots of flight uh, uh, 11 that you know you saw um, impact the building he was probably had been killed probably prior to you seeing all that but um, he was actually the first guy that's talked about in this book, um, Fall and Rise, and he's got a really, it's kind of a freaky story, at least from a personal perspective, because John, he was a pilot, um, Vietnam vet, that's kind of a recurring theme, a lot of the people that really helped out that day, you know, served in Vietnam, I think that their instincts really helped out, um, but he was also a farmer, um, just as a side job, you know, he grew pumpkins, he grew more, you know, long-term crops. He wasn't out there, you know, toiling in okra every day, but he had a, a decent acreage. And, and the really weird thing is that he was a big proponent of sustainable farming. He had a, a an acre section of his, I think, 80-something acre farm in Massachusetts, I believe. I should know those details, but I think that's where it was. Um, it was an acre was dedicated for Cambodian immigrants to farm and do it sustainably. And he, I, I, I can't remember exactly, I think it was a federal government program that he was a real big proponent of. And so for me, you know, that's what I do is I'm a sustainable farmer. And that seems like 2001, that's so, yeah. that wasn't a very popular thing back then, you know, and Enough he was a very big, big proponent of it. So, you know, it's a very weird personal connection on my end. That's right. Um, Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, Mr. Heim, or Jim, sorry, not Mr. Heim. Um, thank you for giving me your time. And um, hopefully this, you know, gets seen by uh, people that, one live to the event kind of relive the stuff and, and get a different perspective but also this is really again meant for people that did not live to the event and kind of get a a more personal perspective on it and uh, again every story counts there's thousands out there every year that i read more books on on 9 11 or, or documentaries or whatever i feel like i learned new stuff just like this john uganowski did not know about him or specifically about him you know just till the other day so um yeah. well listen it's uh, been a real pleasure i appreciate your interest um and uh, I was happy to participate and, you know, uh, uh, every day is a gift. Don't forget that. Yeah, that's right. And don't, don't eat special K. Eat, eat good, good vegetables, like you said. <laughs> you got it, buddy. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. Good talking to you. Take care now. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.